Today's reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. The parable of the ten bridesmaids. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten young women took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was Then all those young women got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other young women came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. I really don't like this parable. I really struggle with this whole chunk of Matthew, if I'm honest. But this parable in particular, I've never liked. It seems to me very mean of the bridegroom and of the other virgins not to share their oil and not to let the the poor girls in. I mean, it was his fault he was late in the first place, right? I did a lot of reading around this parable, and I didn't like any of the commentaries either. (laughs) I didn't like... what they were asserting and a couple of the commentaries clearly also didn't like said that this was um, I thought was very strong and very interesting so I'm not the only one I don't know what you think of this parable but I thought I'd be honest when I saw this that this was my parable to preach on I was like oh great fantastic There's a number of themes in, well, there's one main theme in this parable, which is to be ready and to be prepared. Matthew, in a lot of the parables at this point, um, talking about the kingdom and whether the kingdom's coming, and in the parable before with um, the, the landowner who comes home early, and then in this one, the bridegroom is late. So it's not talking about when the kingdom is coming, but just that pointing out that we have no idea when the kingdom is going to come. It might come early, it might come late. But we need to be prepared and we need to be ready. 
And in this, there is also a theme of that binary opposition between wisdom and foolishness, and therefore who is in and who is out. And that's the part I really struggle with. There are a lot of readings of this passage that look at this parable and make assumptions that it is talking about the end times, that it is talking about what happens when we die. And it leads, I think, to a number of problematic interpretations and teaching on this particular parable. You either have a parable that tells you that, well, so long as you're in, and so long as you have got the right oil ready, then you don't really need to worry because you'll be fine. Because everything, you get to go to the party at the end of the night. And it breeds a complacency and a kind of cheap grace that says that what we do right now doesn't really matter. Because if we've got the right answer, if we've said the sinner's prayer or whatever, then it's okay, we get in at the end. And... Or it, it leads to an urgency of, well, I know that I'm in the party, but there's all these other foolish people around me who aren't. And that urgency of needing to get those people into the party then leads to a lack of grace and an expectation to behave and a pressure to conform, to be like me to practice the same faith that I do, make your Christianity look like mine, behave this way, say the right things, do the right things, turn up on a Sunday, and then you can get into the party too. But it lacks a grace and lacks an empathy and a love and a compassion, which I will come to later. Or you end up in a a sense of, well, okay, well, there is a party and we need to be ready and so we need to know what to do to get ready. And so it leads us to a place where we are working for our faith and we are earning our place in the party at the end of the night. And we're going to do the good things, we're going to save the right people or we're going to work really hard and do really good and worthy justice work. And that means that we'll get into the party at the end of the night as well. And I feel that all three of these approaches to this passage are very understandable and I imagine you have probably heard a sermon preached on this passage at some point that said at least some of that or one of those things probably in a much nicer way than I've just put it across to you um, but everything every pass like every interpretation that I've just explained is an interpretation that is read through the lens of Christendom and an eschatology that is influenced by Christendom. Now, if you're not sure what the phrase Christendom is, um, well, you probably have heard it. The idea, basically, it's when Christianity ended up in power. So the emperors took over Christianity, it was a growing religion, they took it on and thought, oh, this is good, we can get people into line using it. And so they did, and then Christianity becomes powerful and it becomes an expectation, and it becomes this thing that then is used as a tool to control people, those that have the power and those that don't. And so we start, scripture starts being read through this lens, and these parables start being read through this lens of, well, this means that the bridegroom is clearly God or Jesus, 
and therefore we have to do what the bridegroom says and we have to be ready for the bridegroom so that we can get in. We need to make sure that our, like, or the, the, those that are in power are saying, you need to make sure that your, your oil is ready, you need to make sure that you've got enough good works, you need to make sure that you've saved enough people, you need to make sure that you've definitely said the sinner's prayer and you've definitely repented and you need to be born again. And it becomes a tool, these beautiful parables, these beautiful stories become tools of control and manipulation and bullying, as one commentary put it. And this is what Christendom did. Christendom is when Christianity is the powerful, controlling religion or state or whatever. Yet, we are now moving into a post-Christendom world existence. And I think that's a very good thing. But what then we need to do is start peeling back the layers of our assumed readings of these passages and start thinking about what does a post-Christendom reading look like? I always say, I, well, I think I almost always say in most sermons about my what God and so what. And I feel like in this, it makes Simon very happy. I think he's disappointed he's not here this week because I'm talking about eschatology, which is like his thing. Um, and I feel like this week, actually, the question is, what eschatology do you have and so what? Okay, I'm going to explain what eschatology is as well. So eschatology is the theology of, the, of like, what happens? <laughs> like, what happens next? Like, the end or not the end? And both Woodman and I would say that we have an entirely realized eschatology, that the kingdom of God is breaking through now, that the kingdom is here there is the now and the not yet, but it's definitely here now as well. And we look at the early listeners of this passage, the listeners to Matthew. And Matthew was writing for an audience that were now decades past Christ. The first hand hearers are dying off and we're now into kind of second generation church and or third generation either even and Jesus hasn't come back in the way that perhaps was understood or expected and now Matthew's teaching these parables about the kingdom of God coming early or coming late and actually we don't really know and so we have a group of people who are trying to figure out what what is going on and so you have these stories about what the kingdom of God is like and the kingdom of God is like 10 virgins who fall asleep at the side of the road waiting for a bridegroom. Some of them are ready, some of them aren't. And when the party comes, the ones that are ready get to go in, the ones that aren't miss out. And there's an expectation on us to be ready. But I don't think that they would have looked at the bridegroom and gone, well, that, that's Jesus, that's God. I think they would have looked and they would have related themselves to the bridesmaids, to the virgins, waiting, unsure, falling asleep, maybe feeling ready, maybe feeling unprepared, not sure, confused, 
Maybe they feel like they've already been left out in the dark. Maybe they feel like no one's coming. When I read this passage, when I wrestle hard with this passage, I look for where God and Jesus are in it and they're not there, at least not in the way that we think. I mean, the, the parable starts, the kingdom of heaven will be like this. It's not the son of man is like, or I am. It's none of the statements that Jesus is making about himself and therefore God. The kingdom of heaven will be like this. And I don't think the kingdom of heaven is the bridegroom either. Actually, I think the kingdom of heaven is the oil. And I think this parable was speaking to people where they were, exactly where they were. And I think this parable speaks to us right now, exactly where we are. It's about now. It's not about some end point. Yes, this is a passage talking about being ready. And yes, there is an urgency. And yes, there is a warning and there is a a push to do something, to be ready, to have your oil. But if the kingdom of God is the oil, what does that mean? If we have the kingdom of God and we're ready, we have the opportunity to be leading the procession. We have the opportunity to be walking with the party. And if we don't, we miss out. So what are we missing? If this isn't about some pie in the sky when you die, about some party at the end of our life, what are we missing out? And so therefore I start asking actually, what are we missing out and therefore what is the cost? I don't think the cost is hell, at least not eternal, burning, fiery damnation. I do think the cost might be hell for some people now here on earth. The cost of not being ready, of not holding the kingdom and bringing it with, bringing it with us wherever we go and being ready means that the kingdom doesn't happen. There is darkness. And bad things happen in the dark. Pain and suffering and war and injustice. One commentary wrote that they feel, well, they read this in the light of, it's uh, when good people do nothing is when evil prevails. And he talks about Christians in the rise of Hitler in Nazi Germany. And not that those Christians could have stopped Hitler at the height of his power, 
But what would have happened if actually they were ready with the kingdom of God and they were bringing the kingdom of God here and now on earth and that was a kingdom that is full of grace and love and justice and mercy and humility. Maybe Hitler never would have got power in power in the first place. If we hold an idea that it's all going to be all right when we're dead anyway, and that's when the justice is going to happen, then that means that we, be, we let evil happen now. Jesus didn't come to save us from a violent God that's going to send us to hell. A non-violent, loving God sent Jesus to save us from our violence by bringing the kingdom of God here now. That's the urgency. The more ready we are, the more kingdom we have, the more we're going to see it around us, the more we bring God's kingdom here. I'm a bit of a sci-fi fan. Um, and I always think it's really interesting that you see these time travel movies and people go back in time and they're terrified of, of like making one slight change and changing the whole, like it's, it's like Back to the Future or Terminator, all those movies, like you change one small thing in the past and everything changes in the future. Yet, all these stories are written like that, we, but I feel like we don't believe we don't live like that's true though now. We don't believe that we can make one small difference in what ramifications and ripples that will have going into our future. Last weekend, I spent um, the weekend talking to a load of trainee Baptist, Baptist ministers, teaching them about community organizing and about the change that they can make. And this was a room full of um, people and a number of whom when you start asking questions the answer comes back evangelism or Jesus in that kind of very classic way so the answer is always Jesus um, but by the end of the weekend after talking to them about the impact that community organizing community development can have where you you fight for justice you f the the whole thing in citizens is this idea of the now and the not yet like where we are the situation the world as it is right now and the world as we want it to be and so you keep chopping off these little issues these little things and you work towards the world as you want it to be oh, that sounds like the kingdom of heaven to me that sounds like what we're trying to do as well and i was talking to this room and i was pointing out to them like actually well what does the kingdom of god look like and and what does the gospel look like when you have a group of people? So what, what would happen if the church rallied around a group of people and not just told them about the stories of Jesus, but actually listened to them, listened to their stories, listened to the things that are not right in their life, and then got alongside them and not only fought for them, but actually centered them, let them do their own fighting, let, them, let their voices be heard, and then they saw change happen in their life. What kind of evangelism is that? How is that not bringing the kingdom of God here on earth now?
there's a, a song that became the, the kind of almost unofficial anthem of the civil rights movement. Um, I can't find the name of the person who wrote it now, but it's... Um, the lyrics go, there ain't no room for the hopeless sinner who will hurt all mankind just to save his own. Have pity on those whose chances grow thinner. There ain't no hiding place against the kingdom's throne. And in 1965, you had a lot of white allies who had joined freedom, the freedom movement, and they were confronting racial segregation. But you also had white lawmakers opposing the voting rights, white Klansmen murdering civil rights activists and white police beating black people who knelt in prayer. So who is the sinner that must be stopped? This song, when I saw it and when I read it, sounded to me just like this idea of the, the oil again and who's ready and who's not. And what happens when we fight the injustice that we see around us? And looking at the, the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment as well, the, the brutality that's happening, the racism that's happening across the globe, but especially in the US. What happens when we're not ready and we don't have our oil and we're not willing to lead the procession of God's kingdom on earth? What is the cost? Because I don't actually think most of us will pay the cost. Not personally. But I think the cost happens out there and it happens to other people when we do nothing, when we don't live out God's kingdom. We need to be ready. We need to have our lamps trimmed and our oil full. We need to be leading the procession. And we need to be fighting for what's right. We need to believe that we can make a change now and that it will ripple into the future. We need to believe that we have the power and the agency to do that through Christ, through the kingdom of God. It's interesting, we have these passages and then you go a little bit further and it's all pointing towards the cross. It's all, all, we're in Lent, all pointing towards Easter. <coughs> Sorry, I realized I tried to turn away from my mic and it doesn't work when it's on your face. Um, so it's all pointing towards the cross, it's all pointing towards Jesus. And as we get closer, we realize that the disciples weren't actually ready and they end up in the dark, they run away. The disciples were like the five virgins that didn't have any oil.
And this is my last word of, I think, of encouragement, is that even if you feel like maybe you're not ready right now, or you're aware that you have not been prepared or that you're not doing what you can, we're on the way to the cross. And the end of this parable is not actually the end of the story. The next installment is the living parable of Jesus on the cross, knocking on the door, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds quite similar to Lord, Lord, open up to us. Jesus meets those five virgins out in the dark and is with them. And Jesus is out with us when we're in the dark. And he went back out to the disciples where they were too. This passage to me brings a sense of urgency and a sense of, I don't think there's a better word than urgency, to do, to bring God's kingdom on earth and to believe that I have a place in doing that and that I can be part of the procession that is leading us all into the light. For Jesus is with us. And when we fail, and when we get it wrong, and when we fall asleep, or we forget to be ready, or we just don't have the energy, Jesus is with us. We're not alone. We're not without hope. There is no ultimatum, just encouragement. As we go from this place this morning, you to think about your oil, think about where your readiness comes from, where your energy comes from, where your passion comes from. I don't want you to feel guilty if you feel like actually you don't have any oil left, that you are literally running on fumes. Know that I can relate to that. And I want you to be encouraged that you're not out in the dark by yourself. That we have Christ with us. But I want you to believe that you can make a change. That you can bring God's kingdom on earth and that you are an integral part of doing that and that you are powerful especially when you stand with Christ Amen Let us pray Our Heavenly Father God of compassion we come to you in prayer asking for your love 
your grace and your mercy to be upon us. We name in our hearts and bring to you the needs of the sick, the lonely, the oppressed, all those who are struggling in any way, feeling lost, uncertain, and afraid. We ask that you give them strength, comfort, and hope in the midst of their difficulties. May they feel your presence in their lives. Dear Lord, Prince of Peace, we come to you today with heavy hearts as we witness the continuing unrest and violence in Ukraine and other parts of the world. We pray for peace to prevail. We ask that you guide the leaders of nations towards diplomacy, cooperation and understanding. May they work towards resolving their differences through peaceful means and find common ground for the well-being of all people. We pray for the safety and protection of all those who are affected by violence and conflict. Comfort those who have lost loved ones, homes or livelihoods. Give strength, courage and wisdom to all those who are working towards peace and justice. May they be a voice for the voiceless and bring hope and compassion to those in need. Dear Lord, God of justice, we come to you today to pray for social justice in our world. Help us stand up and work for a society that is fair, equitable, and just for all people. Grant us the courage, strength, and persistence to speak out against injustice, to be advocates for the marginalized and oppressed, and to work actively, concretely, where we are towards real change. Dear Lord, Head of the Church, we pray for us, the members of this church, that you may strengthen our faith and deepen our relationship with you. May we be filled with your love and be at the service of those around of welcome and acceptance for all. Dear Lord, our Creator, we rejoice at the awakening of nature in spring. Make us better stewards of your creation. May we work towards sustainability and conservation and take action to, to reduce our impact on the climate and on the environment. Let us act responsibly as individuals and be exemplary as a church community. We pray for those who are most affected by the effects of climate change, but who are so often forgotten in the rapid succession of natural disasters. Our thoughts are with the people of Pakistan affected by the floods, the people of East Africa suffering very severe droughts. After the terrible earthquake of last month, we also keep in our hearts and prayers the many homeless in Turkey and Syria.
may they find relief and support in the face of these challenges. And finally, dear Heavenly Mother, God of love, on this Mothering Sunday, we are grateful and we give thanks for the love of our mothers, for their never-ending care and concern, for the joys they have shared with us, and for the pains they have borne for us. May we too be able to convey love to people close and far away, whether in thoughts, prayers, or actions. We ask for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. And so, as we go out from this place this morning, may we walk in that parade with Christ, bringing his kingdom into being in our world.